So I wanted to talk about forgiveness this afternoon. And to begin by acknowledging some of the um, messages of forgiveness from traditional leaders, political leaders, and religious leaders. So Pope John Paul II apologize for the sins committed by the Catholic Church and its members against different groups of people throughout history. In South Africa there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I'll talk about a little later. Tony Blair apologized for England's role in the Irish potato famine. Leaders of Cambodia's Khmer Rouge have come forward in communities and apologized. A community in Kentucky offered forgiveness to a young man who shot his classmates. What? A community in Kentucky. Oh, sorry. I forgot the mic. A community in Kentucky offered forgiveness to a young man who shot their, um, their children in a school. Um, there are many um, warring groups uh, that have um, uh, continued to ha uh, play out in um, the past who have managed to come to a ceasefire. Uh, and many spouses in different homes all around the world whose partners have been unfaithful and who have um, offered the doorway back into their home to those spouses. So there um, are in our own lives many, um, many times that we practice forgiveness. It is, it is such a profound and beautiful quality of mind that has supported um, that has supported healing. And um, it's um, considered an aspect of loving kindness and the gateway to um, loving kindness because the qualities that um, live inside of us that are the blockage to the heart. Uh, for example, shame and blame, resentment, jealousy, envy, um, uh, vengefulness. All those qualities are um, dissolved through the energy of forgiveness through the capacity of the heart to forgive. So it's said that forgiveness unburdens the heart and purifies the heart so that love might enter. And we know that to be true. And I think of um, the um, young woman Malala Yo Sufazi, who is, do you remember, who was shot by the Taliban for standing up for girls' education in Afghanistan. And um, she spoke at the UN and she said, I am not against anyone. I am not speaking for revenge, but for the right for girls to be educated. That's the quality of forgiveness. So beautiful. Can you say more about how that's forgiveness? She's focusing on what she is there for, 
I don't see the forgiveness in it. That, that, you know, when we're shot and hurt by someone, the habitual response is to move in hatred, in blame, in, in revenge. And she, she um, didn't move from those energies. She moved from her vision of respect, of caring, of um, acknowledging the right of young women for an education. So she moved with that energy rather than, let's get them back, let's get our own guns, let's organize to get rid of the Taliban. So, um, the, um, that capacity to, in the face of, of injustice, um, in the face of being wrongfully shot, or I think of also um, Nelson Mandela, who, when he came out of jail after wrongful imprisonment of 27 years, said, I don't have... I don't have time for revenge. I think, I think that's so that's so deep. I, I it just it's such a beautiful capacity that we have that we can grow. And not not to say that part of the process isn't an, isn't um Part of the process doesn't preclude those feelings because they just come up when we're hurt, but that we don't act on them. So um, another another favorite story is Mahagosananda, who in um, Cambodia, in the midst of all that murder and the killing that happened, understood that the only path to healing was the path through love. And do you remember, because I quote that story a lot, he decided to walk from village to village in dedication to the healing of his country, chanting, hatred shall never cease through hatred, but by love alone shall we find peace. And. Um, and what was so radical about it was that no one was leaving their villages because there were so many bombs planted by the, by the Khmer Rouge and by the um, United States because the United States had come into Cambodia that no one wanted to leave their village because they would walk along the usual paths and they would be blown to pieces or they would lose their limbs. And he realized that the isolation of communities meant that there was no capacity to heal the, the country. And so he said, I would rather die in this process of reconnecting to each other and um, in this field of love than not. And so he started a walk that because he started, other people joined in. And apparently there were hundreds of people who walked with him from village to village chanting this um, ancient Buddhist chant of hatred shall not cease through hatred, but by love alone shall it cease, come to an end. And um, I, I don't know about you, but... I certainly have watched myself over over my lifetime test that out, you know, over and over again, where I have hated just in unadulterated unadulterated ways. I've hated different different people, particularly members of my own family, my father, particularly, and. And express my hatred when memories surfaced of some of the violence that I had repressed. And, and you know, even though when I was growing up in the 60s there was the rage of 
beat pillows with tennis rackets and scream your rage and express your rage. When that expression happened through the energy of vengeance and really wanting to lash out, it never was healing. And I couldn't figure out what was wrong because I would bash the tennis rackets against the pillow. Mm -hmm. I would scream and rant and rage and and I never found healing. And um, when when my parents got out of jail, they were they went into hiding, and then they made a deal with the police rights to um, get out of the country in return for our citizenship. So there wasn't any time to process that as a family and for us as children. So it was like they resurfaced, and it's like we're leaving South Africa. With them, I was so pissed off, and we we I'm gonna go into all that we that we went through a circuitous route to come to England, and it was England was cold, and we were living in a very poor area because we didn't have any money because they hadn't worked for years, and we were living in two rooms, and I hated it. I hated England. I hated where we lived. I hated how cold it was, I, and I what. I did with the hatred was to act out. I wouldn't come home. I wouldn't call them. I wouldn't connect with them. I would just go out and and go hang out with different people. And I feel like I really excelled mm -hmm. at um, revenge of different sorts. And I got, I got that it actually didn't help. So these. These, which so these teachings are really saying that um, if we want to find love, at least for ourselves, if not for anyone else, the path of that is to open our hearts. And to open our hearts then means to feel the pain and suffering that the revenge or hatred or shame and blame come out of. So the path of forgiveness is really about the first noble truth, the second, the third and the fourth, really all in one teaching which is to acknowledge that each one of us carries a particular expression of the first noble truth of suffering whether it's the wounding from our particular family, whether it's the wounding from um, our family of origin, or the family we're living in now, or this culture um, uh, of um, you know, what it is to live in a country where one in five women are either inappropriately touched sexually or raped. I mean, just to know that, to know if you've been reading your newspaper recently that this young kid who raped a student who was unconscious got six months in jail. And just to carry the weight when we really open to it of the pain of living in a culture where life isn't respected and young women and ourselves as older women aren't respected. Um, and well, I wouldn't, don't want to say that we're all older, middle, where um, in all our ages. Um, and in, in our races, in our queer expression, in our different abilities, in um, what it really means to understand this path of opening to see what's living inside of us and to honor it that our life's work is to open to what's living inside of us individually and as a community because it is through that opening 
that um, the blame, shame, and revenge begins to dissolve. And so that doesn't mean we get to judge those energies because they are the automatic response to defend ourselves. And as a young child, I didn't know any other way to defend myself. I didn't know any other way to act other than to be angry and revengeful. And, and in retrospect, I honor it. So I wanted to read a story about that because um, it, it's not to blame or shame ourselves for those energies, but to understand that they are modes of defense that misunderstand where real healing is. Manny Babbitt was walking down the street in Sacramento, California on a foggy December night in 1980. An oncoming car startled him. He heard the movie story of G.I. Joe airing on the television set complete with the bombs and guns screaming at him. Leah Schendel was watching the movie at home with her screen door open. Manny's mind flashed from the dark green and black trash bags outside beside him, outside Leah's apartment, to the green and black body bags loaded onto the helicopters in Khe San, Vietnam. He hurried into her apartment to turn off the television, and Manny did what he was supposed to do, ensuring that the enemy was dead and his fellow soldiers were protected. He went through the ritual of securing the area. When Shandal got up to stop him, he struck her. She died from heart attack. He tagged Leah Shandal's body after she died, so that she could be identified and arrive home safely. He covered her with a teapot and a mattress and took keepsakes. The story did not start there, of course. Rather, it started when Manny, a poor Cape Verdean, was a child growing up in Wareham, Massachusetts. It was typical for a death penalty case, repeatedly kept back in school, a drunk and brutal father, a mentally ill mother, a good child and protective of others, suicides and mental illness in the family, and then the first head injury and a changed behavior pattern as a result. His life was a tragedy and so Manny entered the military. Manny could not have gotten into the Marines without the recruiter at South Providence filling out the general intelligence test for him. The military simply did not have enough troops. After boot camp at Paris Island in South Carolina, Manny was assigned to an ONTOS, a light anti-tank vehicle. He loaded shells filled with darts that were fired at groups of North Vietnamese soldiers and shredded them to pieces. The young Marine described it as body parts like red rags flying. Mm -hmm. He was 18 years old. In the 77-day siege of Khe San in 1968, there were 6,000 U.S. troops holding, is it Quezon or Quezon? Quezon. against 40,000 North Vietnamese Army regulars. Fighting was sometimes hand-to-hand. -hand. Most of the Marines at Quezon were teenagers, young enough to develop the blank, flat expression they called the thousand-yard stare. In the course of the combat, the U.S. Air Force dumped more than 150,000 bombs into the surrounding jungle. 
When a soldier was killed, his comrades would try to cover the body with bedrolls, blankets, whatever might protect the body from the shrapnel and rats. They would take personal belongings such as cigarette lighters as keepsakes. Then the corpse's ankle were tagged for identification. On the 56th day of the siege, March 1968, a North Vietnamese rocket exploded on the airstrip in Quezon and Manny was struck in the head. He became one of 2,000 U.S. casualties at Quezon. He was loaded onto the helicopter on top of a green and black body bag. And before the helicopter took off, more dead Marines were thrown on top of him. He returned to combat one week later. Manny took part in five major campaigns in Vietnam. Back home, he huddled in the middle of the wet streets in the dark, covered by cardboard and dressed in fatigue jacket, camouflage pants and combat boots. He traveled with bottle caps, kicking them as though they were castanets. It was a technique used by soldiers to stay awake in the trenches of Vietnam. Manny used them to meditate. He often screamed for help, I am going to hurt someone. In December 1980, Bill Babbitt, Manny's brother, made the hard decision, hardest decision of his life. He told the police that he suspected his younger brother of having killed Shendal. Manny had come to live with Bill and his wife Linda in Sacramento that September after being released from a mental institution. Manny had been suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome ever since he returned from Vietnam. His life revolved around drugs, medication, internal combat and mental institutions. Linda called Bill at work one day and said she had found coins stashed around the house and that Manny had been buying the kids gifts with extra money. That night, Bill found a little choo-choo piggy bank packed with rolls of nickels along with a cigarette lighter engraved with the initials L.S. He looked through the newspaper and found an article about an old woman who was killed in their neighborhood earlier that week. It hit Bill hard. Leah Shandall had been playing the nickel slots in Reno just days before the murder. Manny's brother turned him into the police. He wanted to get help for Manny. He thought he was doing the right thing and didn't know what else to do. He was promised counseling and support for Manny. The trial in 1982 against Manny was a sham. His court-appointed lawyer failed to raise any coherent argument around post-traumatic post -traumatic stress disorder. The lawyer drank heavily, was poorly prepared for trial, and gathered no background information. Mm -hmm. Years later, the lawyer pleaded no contest to charges of embezzling money from a client's trust fund and resigned from his legal practice. Manny was found guilty by an all-white jury and sentenced to death on May 14, 1982. In prison, Manny studied Tai Chi. He became a chef and read philosophy and Eastern religious books. He read and drew, he taught and counseled. In March 1988, the Marine Corps sent two officers to pin a purple heart on Manny in the warden's office at San Quentin, California. Manny was shackled, stood proud and tall. Governor, California's Governor Gray Davis, himself a veteran, refused to commute the execution for Manny Babbitt in spite of pleas from thousands of people and support of veterans across the country. Bill Babbitt watched his brother's execution and cried. 
the Marines cried, the lawyer cried, the warden cried, and the guards cried. Many saluted as well as he could. He was shackled tightly. Right before he died, he said, I forgive you. environments was no 
intervene in the way that each of us have been blessed with an intervention. Something in our lives brought us to a teaching that would help us to see what is true. And that for whatever reason, those lives haven't had that kind of intervention, haven't had that kind of blessing, and haven't heard that kind of message. And so when we hold the humanity of it, then I watch myself just feel compassion for all the players that are perpetuating decisions and um, impacts out of ignorance and how, how beautiful then the possible next step is which is to forgive them to forgive all beings in their misunderstanding that doesn't mean not to hold them accountable but it does mean we unburden our hearts of shame and blame There is, uh, there is this, um, this whole wave that's happened um, that somehow has been coming back to me more from the non-dual teachings or the Advaita teachings of really looking at the mind when it splits into subject and object. And of seeing how much that split hurts us. When we can't hold the feelings that we can't hold, just like Manny, because we're not fully awakened. So when we can't hold the feelings that um, uh, uh, have happened to be triggered into being for all kinds of good reasons, um, the, the way the mind works is to project those feelings onto a person or an experience, right? So, and it just, it's, it's out of our control. It is the mind's dynamic to do that. So... I just led a retreat recently and um, in Philadelphia, just outside Philadelphia, and there were 22 people and one person of color. And I noticed that um, um, while I was in the middle of a Dharma talk, everyone was sitting and this person was lying down, sort of very relaxed, legs splayed and wearing shorts and a t-shirt and I watched myself feel uncomfortable and I asked this person to um, if she would feel comfortable sitting up and that triggered a lot of rage for her and we and we ended up in a very complex process which I'm going to right now except to say that uh, there was a place that I didn't hold in retrospect I wish I would have but in the moment I didn't hold it in the ways that were needed and I watched my mind even though I knew better I watched my mind not that I was even blaming her but I watched how big I made her in my mind like you know she took up all this space and I saw how it was because of my own feelings and my incapacity to hold what I was feeling which was just a lot of confusion because I realized I hadn't held something and I didn't know in that moment how it was only in processing it afterwards with some other teachers and my therapist that I saw 
um, what had happened. And I, I was like, oh, this is what the mind does. It makes, it just makes, um, it lands all those feelings on this person and makes them bigger than they are, makes them huge in my mind. And that the feeling is that I'm a victim to it. You know, that it's about this person rather than, oh, here I am in confusion. You know, and in seeing that, sort of in seeing that whole process, just coming back to, wow, I understand. I understand this dynamic of blame and how it makes a person or a situation big. And because we're dumping all the feelings that we can't hold onto that situation and person or place or thing. It could even be traffic. And how the, the, um, the healing process of sort of understanding and feeling and understanding and feeling and being gentle and loving, how in that process of integration changes the size of the person in your <laughs> mind until she becomes ordinary like me, caught in a misunderstanding. So, um, the process of forgiveness is the process of acknowledging what our minds are doing, how they work, and in seeing it, in in seeing. If I'm thinking, I think I've mentioned this before, if I think of someone, or if I have the same sentence more than three times, it's a sign I haven't acknowledged my own feelings. And that that's the invitation to begin to explore it and hold it. And the path to it it is, is at least, it's sort of going back to what we were talking about yesterday, feels like it's a combination of really calling back mindfulness of coming into the body, of that being a very patient, caring process, because it took me a week, really, to come back, to come back, to come back through meditation, through walking, to come back into connection with those, with just that sort of world of feeling, and then in as there's more connection to be able to talk about it. And then talking about it to come back more deeply to connect with those feelings. So a whole process which we know is true when we get triggered in some way. Um, and then and then to forgive myself for being a student and to to be on a path of learning through the minefield of our privilege and grace. So, um, uh, I can't remember who said it, but someone said, if only we knew the battles that each person was fighting in their life we would have nothing but an open heart and forgiveness towards them. So, um, uh, just to say that um, um, forgiveness allows us to rebuild trust. It takes both effort and intentionality, and that it understands difference across cultures. It is not condoning, it is not saying that all actions are okay, but it is taking back the energy of shame and blame. It is not absolution like the Catholic Church, we don't absolve ourselves or others of responsibility and it is not a form of self-sacrifice. 
It is not gritting our teeth, tolerating or plastering a smile on our face. It is not pretending. It is not playing the martyr. It is not turning the other cheek. And it is not a moral obligation. It is not a clear-cut one-time decision. We cannot just say, okay, I'm going to forgive you. It is not a problem to be solved. If only I could get rid of this one hatred or judgment or person, then everything will be okay. It is not the misunderstanding if just this person or this situation, I used to feel this after my back surgery, if I could just get back to where I was, everything would be okay. It is not trying to make something disappear in that way. Because um, this was, uh, I knew some people in this situation, I'd like to read it. Um, this is from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and it's from Desmond Tutu's book. The next witnesses were former CDF officers. I, I, you know, right, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa invited um, police and army officers who were genuinely sorry to step forward and to apologize to the um, family um, or the victims, to directly apologize to the family and victims. And... Um, and uh, in return, they weren't prosecuted um, by court. So there was a lot of there was a lot of um, um, reasons for, especially those in the higher echelon, to go forward and to ask forgiveness and to take responsibility because they weren't going to be prosecuted. And so there was some skepticism among some of the community about whether people were really apologetic or not. The next witness were former CDF officers, one white and the other black. The white officer, Colonel Horst Schrobersberger, was their spokesperson. He said that it was true that they had given orders for the soldiers to open fire. The tension became so thick, you could say that you could cut it with a knife. The audience could not have been more hostile. Then he turned towards the audience and made an appeal. I say we are sorry. I say the burden of the Bishu massacre will be on our shoulders for the rest of our lives. We cannot wish it away. It happened. But please, I ask specifically the victims not to forget. I cannot ask this, but to forgive us, to get the soldiers back into the community, to accept them fully, to try to understand also the pressure they were under. This is all I can do. I'm sorry. This I can say, I'm sorry. The crowd, which had been so close to lynching them, 
did something quite unexpected. It broke out into thunderous applause. Unbelievable. The mood change was startling. The colonel's colleagues joined him in apologizing, and when the applause died down, I said, can we just keep a moment's silence, please? Because we are dealing with things that are very, very deep. It isn't easy, as we know, to ask for forgiveness. And it's also not easy to forgive. Be we are people who know that when someone cannot be forgiven, there is no future. If a husband and wife quarrel and they don't say, and they don't, one of them say, I am sorry, and the other says, I forgive, the relationship is in jeopardy. We have been given an example by our president and by many other people. No one could have predicted that day's turn of events at the hearing. It was as if someone had waved a special magic wand which transformed anger and tension into this display of communal forgiveness and acceptance of perpetrators. We could only be humbled by it all and thankful that so-called called Ordinary people could be so generous and gracious. So I would like to invite you to um, lie down or find a comfortable position and we can just flow into a forgiveness meditation. Taking a moment to acknowledge the body. Giving space for the emotions or feelings that are present. Their physical sensations. like to call into being a place, a circumstance, a situation where you have judged yourself for something you have said or done or thought.
May I allow myself to be a student of life and soul to be learning. May I allow myself to be imperfect and to make mistakes, even if they're the same one over and over again. May I allow myself to be where I am on this path of healing. in need of healing. May I accept that I carry the pain of being a human being, being defended in habitual ways, of being reactive. May I forgive myself for not allowing myself to be where I am. If I can't forgive myself, no problem. I offer the opportunity that whenever I'm ready, I might. May this intention be a seed sown in the soil of my being. May it blossom whenever they're the right conditions. said or done has had a negative impact on them. And asking for their forgiveness. May you allow me to, to be a student, not fully enlightened, not fully healed, unknowingly saying and do things, doing things that are hurtful. May you forgive me. May you allow me to be a student of life. May you allow me to be imperfect and to make mistakes. can't forgive me now, may you be able to do so in the future whenever you're ready.
If you feel ready, allowing these beings to leave your heart space and calling in someone who's hurt you. This person who has struggled with so many battles, challenges. defending themselves as we've defended ourselves, but in different ways. See if you would like to offer forgiveness, seeing this person clearly in front of you and offering forgiveness. And if it doesn't come, no problem. Just whenever we're ready, may it happen. May I allow you too to be a student of life. To make mistakes. To be imperfect. learning. May I forgive you. you would like to call into being. I can't do it now, but I want you to know I'm working on it. I know it's my path, even if it isn't arising now. To let go of revenge or hatred or silence or distancing. There's ways of self-protection. Then, finally, if there are communities where we have disregarded opening, we haven't opened our hearts fully to them, we've disregarded them in some way. in prison or homeless. Or across gender. Place where we're privileged and haven't fully seen the humanity of another group. May you forgive me. I want to learn and I'm a student. May you forgive me for the negative impacts of how I've seen you or felt about you or talked about you. 
or ignored you. May you too allow me to be a student of life and still to be learning. Letting go of guilt, one of the main barriers to love and interconnectedness. May I forgive myself. May you forgive me. Then letting all these beings go and coming to the wish of holding ourselves just as we are with love. May I meet myself with love just as I am. This body and mind, may this being be held in love. Mm. Including all of us, if you would like, we've shared today with. in love, just as you are. May you feel the love that is there. that aren't here that are part of our Sangha. May you be held in love. And out to those who are important in your life. May you be held in love. we're coming to the end of this day. We'd like to take the opportunity to share our appreciation to all the work that went into bringing this day into being. those who did the work, their generosity. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your generosity and support. Thank you.